and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. Sometimes when people talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, they talk about it like some abstract math problem that doesn't work very well. So it's sort of like, okay, God is three, and God is one, and that's very complicated, and it takes a long time to understand it, and it's really just this piece of like technical academic theology and doesn't really matter very much. In my tradition, the Episcopal Church, there's a Sunday set aside for the contemplation of the Trinity called Trinity Sunday. And it is famously a Sunday of really bad sermons. It's either people sort of trying to prove the Trinity or hash it out like it were a math problem or just being dismissive and saying, oh, it's just some doctrine, you know, it doesn't pay to think about it too much. And this is all crazy because the Trinity is the heart of Christianity. It is what makes Christianity Christianity. This idea that God is triune, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit That is what we as Christians proclaim, and that is the heart of our proclamation. So, if you read a 90s academic book, you might read that the Trinity is really this kind of creation of the late 2nd, early 3rd century in the work of Tertullian. And if you read a slightly later popular book like Dan Brown or something like that, you might read that the Trinity is a creation of the Council of Nicaea or maybe a creation of the Emperor Constantine. But in all these cases, there's the sense that the Trinity is this kind of latecomer to the party, that it's not an original Christian doctrine. It's not a word that you find in the Bible. So who really cares? So here is the true story of the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. So in one sense, those books that say it comes out of the late 2nd, early 3rd century with Tertullian are right, in that he coins the term Trinity. So it's like if you had these um, vehicles which were kind of like a van and kind of like a truck and kind of like a car, they had aspects of all three, and you had those for hundreds of years, and then one day said, you know what we should call those? Sport utility vehicles. Oh, that's a great, yeah, SUVs, that's what we're going to call them from now on. It doesn't mean that these SUVs didn't exist before people started calling them SUVs. It just means that some clever person found the perfect name for them, and that became a popular thing to call a truck car van. In the same way, when Tertullian starts using this term Trinitas, it's not that he's inventing a new theological concept or describing some reality of God that no one had ever thought about before. He's just found a convenient Latin word to describe the way the church has been talking about God. So if Trinity doesn't come from Tertullian, where does it come from? Well, it doesn't start as a doctrine, and it doesn't start as an equation or a math problem. It's not as though at some point someone said, God has to be one and God has to be three, so let's kind of figure this whole thing out. Instead, it really just comes from the Old Testament. So if you open the Bible to page one, and you're looking at the very first chapter of Genesis, you have this moment in which we are before time. We are before creation. We are before the entire world. Nothing has yet been created. And in this moment before time, you see God the Father, you see God, 
who speaks creation into being through his word. So you have God and you have his word, and he's speaking creation into being. And then we're told the spirit of God hovers over the waters. So you see this trinity of persons. You see God, the word of God, and the spirit of God. And then throughout the Old Testament, you have God, who the people are worshiping. You have the word of God who comes to his prophets, who inspires his people. You have the Spirit of God who comes upon his people. We're told that the Spirit of God comes upon Samuel. We're told that the Spirit of God will one day come upon all people, and all people will prophesy. So from the very outset, you have this presentation of God in the Old Testament as God, the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit of God. God is clearly not the Word of God, but then the Word of God is divine. The Spirit is somehow distinct from God who is creating, God who is breathing the Spirit into Adam and Eve, but then the Spirit is divine. So from the very outset, you have this kind of confusing situation in which you have these seemingly three divine persons. St. Gregory of Nazianzus, thinking about this, said that we have a phase in the Old Testament in which the Father is explicit, the Son and the Spirit are implicit. Then in the New Testament, we have the Father and the Son explicit, and for most of the New Testament, the Spirit is implicit. And then we have the Pentecost and the age of Acts and the age of the Church, in which God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are explicit. So who is the Father? Who is the source of the Trinity? The, in Greek, they would say the Archi of the Trinity, the fountainhead of the Trinity, that from which the Trinity comes. So this is God who is referenced on virtually every page of the Old Testament. God who is infinite, eternal, totally unknowable, so big you will never be able to draw a picture of him or have a clear sense of what he looks like or something like that. This is God of whom Moses says, I want to see your glory, and God says, no one can see my face and live. That's not going to happen. Unlike all the other nations, the ancient Israelites had no icons of God, no pictures of God, no statues of God, because God was so much bigger than anything that we can possibly conceive of. So God is, in a sense, utterly unknowable in his essence. Like, you can't just know things about God, because God is so much bigger than we are. And so there's the scene in which Moses wants to see his face, and he's told he can't see his face and live. But then there's this other chapter in which Moses speaks with God, and the text tells us face-to-face as with a friend. So, if God is so big and so mighty and so glorious that it's impossible to see his face and live, how does Moses then sit down face to face with him and live to tell the tale? For the fathers of the church, and some would argue for first century Judaism, and here I'm thinking of a Jewish scholar like Daniel Boyarin, but for the fathers of the church, they would say that there is, in a sense, God, who you cannot see, and God, who you can see. There is God the Father, who is so far beyond anything that we can experience with our five senses, but then there is God the Son, the Word of God, who is God who comes down to our level, who becomes God with a human face. So for lots of the fathers, when Jacob wrestles with the angel 
he's actually wrestling with the word of God. Because it doesn't say an angel, it says the angel of the Lord. When Moses approaches the burning bush and God speaks to him from the bush, the fathers would say, this was not the father speaking, this was the word, this was the son who is speaking from the bush. And when Moses asks him, who are you? Which, which God shall I say sent me? And he says, I am who I am. The great I am is Christ, is the Son of God, is the Word of God. So it's Christ who gives the Ten Commandments. It's Christ to whom the patriarchs relate. We often tend to think of the Old Testament as about the Father, the New Testament about the Son. But for the earliest Christians, a lot of the Old Testament was about the Son was about the Word of God, was about these experiences of the pre-incarnate Christ. By the first century, by the time of Christ, the vast majority of Jewish people lived in diaspora. They didn't live in Judah, and they spoke not primarily Hebrew or Aramaic, but Greek. So the majority of Jewish people were actually reading the Old Testament or hearing the Old Testament read in Greek from a specific translation called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, the word of God is the logos of God. Logos in Greek means word. But logos is this really big concept. It's not just any old word like potato or eggplant or whatever. Logos is um, kind of the whole system of meaning, the whole system of order that underlies everything in creation. It's the basic structure by which all things are ordered. It's almost like God's reason or God's um, vision of order for the world. So by the time you get to New Testament writers like St. John, who begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos stood in front of God, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos took on flesh and dwelt among us, pitched his tent among our tents, put his tabernacle among us. Um, You have this uh, sense that the Logos, the Word of God, God the Word, is something much bigger than a single word. And in the New Testament, this understanding of God as a trinity of persons continues to be revealed. So much so that for every major moment in the life of Christ, the entire trinity is explicitly discussed or explicitly revealed to us. So in the incarnation, it's not just Jesus being born. We have the Father who sends the Holy Spirit upon the Virgin Mary and the Son is born. So you have this action of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Likewise, in the baptism of Christ, the Son goes down into the waters of the River Jordan, He rises through the waters, the Spirit descends upon Him, and the Father says, This is my Son, the Beloved. At the Transfiguration, the Son and the Apostles, the two Apostles, go up the mountain, and they enter into this luminous cloud, this cloud of light, which the fathers talk about as the Holy Spirit. And within that cloud, the Father says, this is my Son, listen to him. So we have another action of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all working in harmony and unity and synergy. And then, at the crucifixion, the Son is crucified. He's lifted up on the cross, and he says to the Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Son is praying to the Father. And then he dies and is buried. Three days later, St. Paul tells us, The Father raises the Son 
in the power of the Spirit. This is what Paul says to us in Romans about what happens in the resurrection. It's another act of this divine synergy, the three persons of the Trinity working together in unity. So by the time you get to the generation after the apostles, these first church fathers, everyone is just talking in terms of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you look at someone like Ignatius of Antioch, this really seminal figure in the church, the Bishop of Antioch, the city where Christians were first called Christians, he was the student of the Apostle John. He was literally in the generation right after the Apostles, probably born sometime around AD 30. He's martyred around 107 or 108, and he uses Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout his very early Christian letters. He even has this one wonderful passage in which he talks about what it is to be a Christian. And what it is to be a Christian is to be a rock in the wall of the temple of the Father. And it's the cross of Christ, of the Son, that is the crane by which we are lifted. And the rope which actually carries us is the Holy Spirit. So for him, everything is about this triune interaction of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He talks about Christ as God, though not as the Father. He talks about God as God, the Father as God, though not as the Son. The Holy Spirit is divine, but is not the Father or the Son. So you don't have this doctrine of the Trinity. Instead, you have this presentation of a triune God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then in a generation later, we have Irenaeus of Lyon, our old friend, who I've probably talked about way too much already. And he says, this then is the order of the rule of our faith. God the Father, not made, not material, invisible, one God, the creator of all things. This is the first point of our faith. The second point is this, the Word of God, Son of God, Christ Jesus our Lord, who is manifested to the prophets according to the form of their prophesying and according to the method of the Father's dispensation. So Christ who appeared to the prophets, the Word of God who appeared to the prophets, through whom all things were made who also at the end of the age, to complete and gather up all things, was made man among men, visible and tangible, in order to abolish death and show forth life and produce perfect reconciliation between God and man. And the third point is the Holy Spirit, through whom the prophets prophesied, and the fathers learned the things of God, and the righteous were led into the way of righteousness, who at the end of the age was poured out in a new way upon mankind in all the earth, renewing man to God. So for Irenaeus of Lyon, the Trinity, this idea that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is the essence of our faith. These are the points of our faith. This is the rule of our faith. This is what it is to have Christian faith, is to believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all of this seems to go okay for the most part until people start treating the Holy Trinity like a math problem that has to be solved. So you have people who would say one and three. It's just impossible. And obviously math trumps all things, even God's revelation. So we have to reconcile this numeric issue. So you had people on one side who would say, look, the whole three thing that doesn't make any sense. We say that God is one, then God is numerically one. But let's say I can imagine somebody who is a world-famous surgeon, 
and the, this person is, she's phenomenal, she saves lives on the regular, everybody knows what a great surgeon she is, and when she is in the hospital, she's just a revered figure, she's very serious, very stern, she is the boss. But then, when she gets home at night, she's also mama. And to her five-year-old daughter, she is the person who wipes food off her face and gets her a fork when she drops the fork on the floor and makes her stop watching TV so she can go to bed. It's a radically different role, even though it's the same person. And what's more, she's also a daughter. And she goes to visit her parents, and even though she is in her 40s and makes an absurd amount of money and basically runs a hospital surgery department, her parents treat her like she is 12 and largely irresponsible and going to leave her tennis shoes in the living room while watching TV and clearly hasn't done her laundry and make all these assumptions about her not eating enough and so forth. And so in all these three different roles, it's almost like she's three different people because she acts so differently talking with her father, talking with her son, talking with the doctors who work under her. But really, she's the same person in all these roles. And so you had a group in the church who said, what if God is that way? What if it's just God? But sometimes we perceive him as father, sometimes we perceive him as son, and sometimes we perceive him as spirit. And the church said, no, that is heresy. They called it modalism because God was in these three different modes. Because what's revealed in Holy Scripture is not one God who is a shapeshifter or who puts on different masks or who we just have different impressions of. God is actually three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you can say, well, what's the difference? Aren't we kind of splitting hairs? Who knows anyway? But it's kind of like saying, well, are your grandparents two separate people or actually one person? It doesn't really matter. I mean, yeah, sure, you can have a relationship with your grandmother, and you can go pick cherries together and sew quilts together, and you can have a different relationship with your grandfather, and you can go fishing with him and watch basketball with him. Or you can just have a relationship with your grandparents, who are basically the same person anyway. That's not how people work. That is absolutely not true. If you have a relationship with a person, it's with that person as a person, not as a part of some sort of larger system. Like, you don't fall in love with a, a larger system, which has like multiple persons or maybe is just one person. That doesn't even make any sense. So if we're taking the personhood of God seriously, if we're taking the personhood of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit seriously, it really matters that they are actually discrete persons who are utterly united in their divinity. Like all the heresies, the modalists had taken this mystery of God, this inconceivable nature of God, and they had shrunk it down to a human-sized package that you can actually wrap your mind around and make some sense. And so the church said, no, God is mystery. God is not a solvable math problem. Later, you have a guy named Arius of Alexandria, and he says, Ah, no, 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 the modalist is completely wrong. It's not the three part that's the problem. It's the one part that's the problem. So, threeness, absolutely. Three separate persons, without question. The thing is, to be one and three, you kind of have to say they are such discrete persons, they are so separate from one another, there's, there's really only one that's actually God. So, the Father 
is actually God. The other two are like his first creations. So you have these two first creations, the Son and the Spirit, that are so fantastic. They're basically divine. I mean, these are just, they're the best. So God kind of has these two really significant middle managers, the Son and the Spirit, and they do all of his work in the world. And we relate to him through them, we know about him through them, and so it's almost like they are all one. But of course, there's God on one side of the fence and everything he made on the other side of the fence. And the Spirit and the Son clearly go on the side of stuff that he made, like you and me and the planets and the stars and subatomic particles and horses and everything else. Again, this math problem is solved. The mystery is brushed aside, and it's this completely comprehensible picture of God. And so at the Council of Nicaea, the church said, no, it's, you're, you're doing it again. This is that same reductionist tendency to shrink God down to a little, tiny, human comprehensible package. And that's not what we as the church do. Instead, we adore the mystery of God. We adore the incomprehensible, astonishing wonder that is God. And we respect his revelation to us, the revelation of who he is. And so at that council, they came up with some language to kind of describe the Trinity in philosophical terms. But they didn't invent a doctrine. They really just preserved the space for that mystery. So they divided uh, the kind of discussion into the divine essence and the instantiations of that essence. Or in Greek philosophical language, you have the ousia, the essence, and then you have the hypostases, these um, instantiations. But the thing about these terms is that they were extremely vague. You don't get a lot more from this philosophical idea that you hear at the Council of Nicaea than you get from just saying, God is one and God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Rather than a picking apart of the mystery, or even an elucidation of the mystery, it really is just vagueness that preserves the mystery. But what were they so worried about losing? I mean, what do we have to lose if we actually did lose the doctrine of the Trinity? So, you lose, for one thing, the individuality of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You lose unique relationship with Jesus, who is both fully human and fully God. You lose unique relationship with God the Holy Spirit, who is working within us, who is giving life to each of us, who gives life to all things. And you lose your unique relationship with our Father, who art in heaven. So the personhood of the individual members of the Trinity is really essential, as is the divinity of the individual members of the Trinity. So if Jesus is not really God, then it's not the Almighty, the all-powerful, the source of light and life and truth and beauty who allowed himself to be crucified to show his love for us. Instead, he's just some guy or some angel or some creature who God likes and respects, who he's just like, well, I guess I'll sacrifice that guy. He becomes an invaluable piece in a chess game instead of the whole game, the whole everything. But if Jesus is fully divine, if he is fully the Son of God, if all things attributable to God are attributable to Christ, 
then this is this astonishing, amazing showing forth of love, this incredible act of self-sacrifice on God's part to die in solidarity with us, to defeat death through our own death, and to destroy death forever through becoming one of us all the way to the end. And if God the Holy Spirit is not fully divine, then how can I possibly be a walking temple to God? How am I a temple to the Holy Spirit? How is it that I can even have a prayer life? Because how can I, who cannot even conceive of the Father, how can I reach out to the Father? It actually takes God praying within me, praying through me to even get to God. So, we have so much to lose if we lose the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, this idea that God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It is the biggest, most important, most astonishing thing in Christianity. What's more, a contemporary theologian, Callistus Ware, points out, how can we say with John in his first letter that God is love and really mean that eternally? Because there was a time before the creation when God was the whole shebang. There was nothing but God. So God in his primary identity, at least before the creation, was not primarily omnipotent. I mean, he was omnipotent, but there was no all to be powerful over. There was, it was just God. Same with omniscience. Of course, he knew everything, but that was just knowing himself. He certainly wasn't the judge of anyone because there was no one to judge. He wasn't the creator because he didn't create anything. Instead, as John says, he was, he is love. Like that is his primary essential identity and nature. And this word that John uses in his letter, it doesn't mean love in the sense of liking something or self-love or something like that. It actually means selfless love, selflessness, selfless giving to another with expecting nothing in return, agape. And so if God is pure selflessness from before the creation, who is it that he is selfless towards? How can he possibly be selflessly loving if there is nothing to love but himself? But if from the beginning of creation, from before time, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is this infinite, eternal community of love, then suddenly, oh, I kind of get a little taste of what John means, that God actually is a selfless outpouring of love from before time itself. And if ever you're in a state in which you think, well, fair enough, maybe there's something out there, maybe there's some sort of almighty or higher power or something like that, but why would it give me the time of day? I am so inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. I'm going to live for best case scenario 100 years. I live in just one little state in one little country and one little planet in one teeny tiny solar system in the middle of nowhere in some galaxy. Why me? Why would God care about me? I've done literally nothing to deserve the love of God ever in my life. I mean, maybe I've done a few nice things. Maybe there have been some times where I could have been a worse person and I held myself back, but certainly nothing to deserve the love of the center of the universe, the creator of reality, the heart of all reality. And so if God's feelings towards me were dependent upon my actions or my achievements or what kind of a person I am, it seems highly unlikely that 
the master of the universe would ever even, I would cross his mind, you know? But if God's nature, his absolute core nature is love, that there is this trinity of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that have been infinitely loving since before time itself, it kind of makes sense that he would also continue to be infinitely loving after the creation, love every nook and cranny of the creation, love every one of his creatures, and even intensely, specifically love you and specifically love me. And that that's actually the God proclaimed by the Gospels. That is the God proclaimed by Christianity. That is the God who Christians worship. He's not a God of vengeance. He's not a God of judgment. He's certainly not a God of cruelty or punishment or evil. He is a God of love. And love, this love passing back and forth between these three persons, is the essence of his nature. I hope you've enjoyed exploring this early church doctrine, this doctrine that becomes known as the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, a doctrine which is core to Christianity from the outset. In our next podcast, we'll explore another one of these very early doctrines of the church. So thank you for joining me for the history of Christianity.